Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat and this opportunity for us to gather together as Mishpacha, as family to worship before you. Father, I thank you that you give us uh, the opportunity to wake up this morning, to be able to breathe in your breath of life, and to be able to live our lives in a way that glorifies you and your holy name. Lord, I pray that we dig into your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that everything spoken will come directly from you, from your heart, that nothing in me will be involved in this message except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, I pray that you breathe new life on us today, and that when we leave here, we will leave here changed and transformed formed for the kingdom of your glory and that many will come to know the truth of Messiah Yeshua because of what you are doing in our hearts and our lives even now as we speak. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah, we pray. Amen. If, uh, Diane, if I can bug you to bring me my coffee that I idiotically forgot over there and uh, desperately need all the time. So, uh, no, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So I don't know about you guys, but uh, I've had a crazy week. I've been kind of nonstop busy. Uh, I want to take a quick moment to thank Stan, who has spent the last two days underneath my truck with me. And by with me, I mean more so him than me because he actually knows what he's doing on what we're doing. But he has spent the last uh, two days uh, helping work on my, uh, my truck and get it back up and running uh, and saving me a really big mechanic bill. Um, so I owe him a really nice dinner now, um, or several. But uh, this week's just been really hectic, and it seems like uh, every week, no matter how hard I try to get ahead of things, that every week, by the end of the week, I'm behind the eight ball on almost everything. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but uh, at least the last, uh, the last several months, that's kind of how things have felt, especially when we were dealing with um, the, the shutdown, the closures and everything. I mean, everything felt behind the eight ball all the time. Uh, but nonetheless, here we are. And aside from all of that, putting the, the nonstop running and the hustle and everything else behind me, I am excited for Shabbat. I'm excited for this day, this, this 24-hour period that each and every week the Lord has set aside for us to enter into his presence, for us to be able to encounter his rest and for us to be able to encounter him. And so I don't know about you, but uh, for me, coming to Shabbat each and every week, I'm, I'm the rabbi. I'm, I'm all, you see me running around. You see me with iPads and Bibles and coffee mugs and refills on coffee mugs. And you see me just constantly running around fixing issues or trying to help with stuff or whatever. Um, Saturdays tend to look busy. If you're looking at me and watching me in here, it looks busy. Uh, but, but being here on Shabbat, even when I'm running around nonstop, there's just something about that encounter. There's just something about being able to gather with you guys. And so I'm extremely thankful to be here and looking forward to leaving here today refreshed in this Shabbat, refreshed in this day of rest. So with that said, this week we are reading Parsha Korach, which is uh, number 16.1 through 18.32. Um, if you've taken time this week, and hopefully you have, uh, to have read this Parsha, you'll notice that there's one overarching theme throughout the Parsha, and it's the simple word rebellion. Korach rebels, Datan and Abiram rebel, Israel rebels. Ultimately, this combined collection of rebellion caused the loss of a lot of lives, but also solidified the authority and the anointing that Adonai had given to Moses and Aaron and the Kohenic priesthood as a whole. Uh, the, the reality is rebellion is a heart issue, and it isn't uh, something that's specifically against the individual. 
It is something against the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh. It is something against the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And if we go all the way back to creation, that was the reality of Adam and Chava, of Adam and Eve in the garden dealing with the serpent, with the enemy uh, trying to tempt them, was the reality is that Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, had the anointing of God upon them. And the enemy was trying to be rebellious against that. He was trying to get into their hearts and their minds and provoke jealousy to provoke uh, rebellion and rage and whatever else. And so this is kind of the idea that we see this overarching narrative that we read through this week's Parsha, through Parsha Korach. So let's go ahead and dig into the, 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 the scriptures. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up. If you don't have your Bible with you, grab your cell phone or your tablet or whatever it is. Odds are you have three or four Bible apps on there. Pick one and open it up. Numbers 16, verse 1 says, Now Korah, son of Ishar, son of Kohath, uh, son of Levi, and sons of Reuben, Dathan, uh, or Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, uh, and On, son of Pelet, rose up against Moses and took 250 men from Israel, men of renown who had been appointed uh, to the council. Notice, right out the gate, not only do you have Korach, and we'll get into who Korach is, not only do you have Dayton and Abiram, and we'll get into who they are, but it says that they took 250 men of renown, men of Israel of renown who were part of the leadership of Israel already. They already had important anointed roles and functions. They assembled against Moses and Aaron. They said to them, you've gone too far. All the community is holy, all of them, and Adonai is with them. Then why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of Adonai? Kind of reminds me again of Adam and Chava, of Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent comes up and goes, but did God really say if you ate that fruit, you would die? Here, Korach, Dayton, and Aviram approach Moses and Aaron, and they say, hey, who do you think you are? Aren't the whole nation of Israel, aren't we all holy? What makes you think you're so special that you should lord it over all of us? Now, if you pay attention to who these men are, Korach, Detan, and Aviram, uh, you'll notice some interesting things. First and foremost, Korach was a Levite, uh, specifically of the family of the Kohathites. This was a very important family of the three Levitical families. They were the family assigned to, carry, uh, to care for and carry the actual furnishings of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. They carried the Aron Habrit, the Ark of the Covenant. They carried the Nertzamid or the Menorah, the Eternal Light. They carried the altar, the, uh, the table of showbread, etc., etc. So they had a very important calling already. They had a very uh, important anointing. Aside from this, the Kohathite family is also the family from which Moses, Aaron, and Miriam come from. Korach's family were higher in the birth order of the Kohathites than Moses and Aaron's was, and Korach felt his family deserved the role of the priesthood and leadership of Israel. Uh, he was jealous of the anointing God had given them. Keep in mind, Korach isn't just Joe Schmo. Korach is one of their cousins, they already had a relationship with him. This wasn't like some random dude coming up the ranks decided he was going to run his mouth. This was a close relative of theirs that's speaking trash against them. Dayton and Abiram were from the tribe of Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn of the sons of Israel. Yet, because of Reuben's sins, the firstborn rights were passed on primarily between the tribe of Levi, the priesthood, and the tribe of Judah, the ruling authority. Also, if you look at a map of the camps of Israel, you'll notice that both the Kohathites and the Reubenites are on the south side of the tabernacle. So, on the east side, you had the Kohanim, and you had the three tribes, with, or two tribes with Judah, three tribes, tribes total, under the banner of Judah. And on the south side of the tabernacle, 
tabernacle. You would have the Kohathites, which were the, the uh, Levites that were responsible for carrying the, the furnishings of the tabernacle. And then just outside of them were the three camps that, that camped under the banner of Reuben. Uh, and so here you have these Reubenites who uh, they recognize that in the birth order of Israel's sons, in the birth order of Jacob's sons, that Reuben was the firstborn, and yet they recognize also that the authority of the firstborn, the benefits of the firstborn, the blessing of the firstborn, had transferred from Reuben to, uh, to Levi and ultimately to Judah with the kingship authority, the rulership over the family. Uh, so it's interesting that you see these two camps, uh, both camped on the south side of the tabernacle right next to each other, and so it's no surprise that these two, having hurt feelings, uh, would have kind of uh, talk to each other. They would have uh, what I call shadow talked, uh, spoken lashan hara or evil speak, evil tongue. They they bolstered through this conspiracy a rebellion uh, to to complicate things in general. They bolstered a rebellion to to come against the leadership of Israel and ultimately to try and lead the nation as a whole astray. And more importantly, trying to take an anointing that wasn't theirs. They already, all of them had their own anointing. All of them had distinct roles within the nation of Israel, but they weren't happy with theirs and they wanted to take the anointing of Moses and Aaron. Notice the key to rebellion is proximity and opportunity. Korach, Datan, and Abiram camped close together. They were able to conspire through Lashon Hara, or evil speak against Moses and Aaron, and to develop a following for an attempted coup and mutiny. The enemy longs to rebel, uh, to sow rebellion and discord, and all he needs is a heart out of order and opportunity. In other words, all he needs is proximity and opportunity. If our hearts are out of order, if we're not in alignment with the will of God, if we're not walking faithfully with God, then he's already got the proximity he needs because we're already stepped back from the presence of God. We're already walking in some way or another outside of or away from his will and his presence for our lives. So the enemy longs to sow rebellion and discord. Through these, he can bring about great destruction if we let him. We must know our place. We must learn to rejoice in our gifts and callings. And we must learn to support one another in each of our gifts and callings and not be jealous of each other. Because ultimately, this was the issue for Korach, for Datan and Abiram. They were jealous of Moses and Aaron. They were jealous of the leadership role that they had. They were jealous of the anointing. They were probably, more than anything, jealous of the power that they carried over the nation of Israel. We move on to verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 8, just a few verses later. Moses also said to Korach, Listen now, sons of Levi, isn't it enough that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel to bring you near to him, to do the work of the tabernacle of Adonai, and to stand before this community to minister to them? So he brought you close, along with all your fellow sons of Levi. But you are seeking the priesthood too? Therefore, you and all your following are banding together against Adonai. Who then is Aaron that you are grumbling against him? Notice that Moses calls out Korach and reminds him that he has a very important role, that he has a very important ministry already within Israel, that uh, this ministry, this role, this anointing that was given to him was something given directly by Adonai. It was a divine anointing, a divine calling that he has as a Kohathite. He asked Korach why uh, he thinks uh, that, uh, why he would think so lowly of his own calling, why he would forsake the unique role that Adonai has assigned to him to play in the priesthood. Why would, for, why would he forsake his own ministry in order to desire someone else's? 
Also notice that in verse 4, before Moses ever responded to Korach, Datan, and Aviram, what is it he says? Very clearly, very specifically. Uh, I'm sorry, not what is it he says, what is it he does? Very clearly and very specifically in verse 4, it says, when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. In other words, if you pay attention to the journey of Israel through the wilderness and you pay attention to Moses and his actions when Israel revolts against the Lord or Israel does something wrong, every time Israel does something wrong, almost every time, uh, he falls directly on his face in intercession on behalf of Israel because he knows the next thing that's going to happen because of Israel's sin is a plague is going to break out. He knows the next thing that's going to happen is the consequence do them. Right? We always joke around and say you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. This is the reality of what Israel is experiencing over and over and over again in the wilderness is they're playing stupid games and they're winning stupid prizes. And so the, the, the reality is Moses knows what's coming next. He knows evil hearts, evil inclination, uh, uh, evil actions, evil desires in the nation of Israel. The next thing that happens is going to be consequence. He falls on his face in prayer before the Lord in intercession for those who are walking contrary to Adonai's ways to make sure his own attitude and heart were in check before flying off the handle, to seek the guidance of the Lord and to allow the Lord to speak through him rather than Moses going on the offensive. Moses speaks a very powerful message to Horak, Datan, and Aviram. Why do you think, uh, or who do you think you are? How dare you forsake the role you have to play and the calling God has given you in order to desire what you perceive as a greater responsibility, as a greater influence, as a more important role? You'll notice now uh, the level-headedness and the ruach-driven or spirit-driven reality of Moses uh, as he goes through all of this. He could have just thrown in the towel, and honestly, a lot of leaders really would have. At one point or another, uh, many of us in our lives and our callings, watching the way people attack us, watching the way people come against us, even just in our faith, ignoring our calling and our ministry and our giftings just in our walk in faith when the world attacks us how often it is that we think hey just be easier to throw in the towel and not even worry about it. i could just do this from home and nobody has to know i could just walk in secret i could hide who i really am and the world would never have to worry about it and i wouldn't have to deal with the headache and the 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 hurt and the pain and the anxiety that comes with it he could have challenged korak to a duel I kind of have this image of uh, them pulling out, you know, pistols, like old school flintlock pistols and shooting at each other. I don't know. My head's weird like that. But he could have challenged Korak to a duel. He could have just launched out and beat Korak, Dayton, and Aviram down. Or even better yet, commanded Joshua to gather a handful of guys together uh, and on his behalf, on Moses' behalf, go and fight for them. He could have done a lot of things. And most of them would have been responses from his humanity. And many of us today, looking back at it, any single response uh, of this nature, any single response on the offensive, most of us probably could have justified in one way or another. But the reality is, is this isn't the heart of Moses. But instead of simply responding instantly out of his humanity, he turns to the Lord and sought his leading in the situation. He fell on his face before Hashem and uh, in intercession and for guidance, he took a situation driven by sinful humanity and gave ground for the Ruach to move, gave ground for the Lord to be glorified. He reminds Korach of who he actually is as a Levite, reminds him of who he actually is supposed to be in the Lord. 
Truth is, you and I are probably just as guilty of rebellion as Korach, Dayton, and Aviram in many different areas of our life and at many different times. We have failed to walk faithfully in our own callings and our own giftings and have, tempted, uh, have attempted to take on the responsibility and callings of others. Or we've tried to usurp authority that wasn't quite ours yet. For instance, if we were serving under another leader and thought we could do a better job, we were guilty of Lashon Hara, or uh, as I said earlier, shadow talking of evil speak, of evil tongue, of slander, gossip, uh, of lying about others against the Lord's anointed. Remember, David is a fantastic example of how we should live our lives and walk out our callings and giftings and anointing and respect and relationship to those we serve under and with. David was anointed king and empowered with the same ruach that Saul was. But as long as Saul was alive, David refused to rebel or usurp the authority Saul was anointed with. And in the same way as leaders with others under our authority, Moses lays out a phenomenal example of how to handle rebellion in a way that glorifies the Lord and allows the Lord to bring resolution and hopefully restoration. Moses immediately responds, uh, his immediate response is to fall on his face in intercession. And we see a very similar concept uh, as we just talked this past week in our Bible study. We see a very similar concept in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. James says, Know this, my dear brothers and sisters. Let, everyone, uh, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger doesn't produce righteousness of God. How much greater of a witness was Moses' life before the second generation of Israel who ultimately would take the promises of God and take the promised land? How much greater of a witness was his life before them because he didn't respond out of his own human anger, out of his own aggression, out of his own hurt feelings, out of his own wounds? Now think back on our own lives, on our own ministries, and our own interaction with other believers and with others in our families and our friendship circles how often do we not respond like Moses? How often do we immediately respond out of our past hurts, out of our past regrets, out of feelings of, uh, uh, of not quite adding up or matching up, out of feelings of, of, of not quite being as good as somebody else or feelings that we could be so much more impactful and so much more useful for the kingdom if we just had Joe Schmo's job instead of our own? How much crappier would the body of Messiah be if those whose calling is to clean up the bathrooms give up their responsibility to try and take on the responsibility and authority and anointing that somebody else has? And who are we to complain about the anointing and the authority and the roles that God has given us? And this is the case that we see with Abiram, Detam, and Korah is that they revolt against Moses and Aaron not because they didn't have a good enough role, not because they didn't have something to be uh, happy about, not because they didn't have something to do, but because they just wanted the other guy's job, because they felt like they could do it better than he could. Oddly enough, Korach, Detan, and Aviram are able to recruit others who have the chutzpah, the, the guts, the the uh, the... the Desire the yearning enough to revolt against Moses and Aaron. Even worse so, once God dealt with all three and their mob, the rest of Israel then rebelled against them because, as they said, you have killed all these men of Israel. Because as we see in the world around us today, apparently personal responsibility is not necessarily a high priority. Why take responsibility for our own mistakes when we can just blame someone else? And when we look at the nation of Israel in this week's Parsha alone, 
Dayton and Abiram and Korach rebel against Moses. They take 250 men of leadership of Israel with them to rebel against Moses and Aaron. And then once they're dealt with and the Lord has solved that problem, then the nation of Israel arises against them. Who do you think you are killing them? Did you bring us to the wilderness to die? Were there not enough graves back in Egypt? And so on and so forth. And we see this reality out of the nation of Israel, the, the first generation. Now, looking back at things, we can see the full context of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We can see the full context and the, the, the timeline, the historical buildup of what was happening in the Torah. And we can look at it and go, hey, that's just the Lord getting rid of the first generation that he's already said had to die in the wilderness so that the second generation could enter into the promised land. And we'd be 100% right. But we'd also be 100% wrong thinking that God didn't have a desire for their hearts and their lives to be lived righteous and holy before him, to have a relationship rooted in the Ruach HaKodesh and the Holy Spirit with them, to walk faithfully in their giftings and callings, even in what limited time they had left in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 12, verse uh, uh, 11, we read, but one and the same Ruach activates all these things speaking of the gifts of the spirit distributing to each person individually as he wills for just as the body is one and has many parts and all the parts of the body though many are one body so also is messiah for in one ruach in one spirit we were all immersed into the body whether jew or greek slave or free and all were made to drink of one ruach for the body is not one part, but many. If the foot says, since I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, is it therefore not a part of the body? And if the ear says, since I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, is it for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were, the, were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the parts, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But now there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot tell the hand, I don't need you, or in turn the head tell the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be less important are indispensable. Those parts of the body that we think to be less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no such need. Rather, God assembled the body, giving more honor to those who are lacking so that there may be no divisions in the body, but so that the parts may have the same care for one another. If one part suffers, all parts suffer together. If one part is honored, all parts rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Messiah and members individually. God has put into his community first emissaries, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then healing, helps, leadership, various kinds of tongues, etc. All are not emissaries, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All do not work miracles, do they? All do not have the gift of healing, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly seek the greater gifts, and still I show you a far better way. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul deals with the concept of love as the ultimate spiritual gift. However, I think Paul brings some amazing illuminations to this issue. In 1 Corinthians 12, here Paul is uh, discussing the gifts of the Ruach, but more specifically is dealing with the reality that we are all the body of Messiah. We are all one body. 
And the body has many parts, many roles, many callings, many pieces. And all these pieces work together for the sake of the kingdom of Messiah. Paul lays out the powerful image of the human body and how it has legs and arms and hands and eyes and ears and mouth and so on. But the human body needs each of these to be 100%. And he says that the arm can't be an eye. They are, des they are designed for different purposes, but all the parts of the body, each designed for different purposes, come together to be one body working together for a unified goal. In the same way and in the same sense, this is the case with the body of Messiah. We are literally millions strong. And each and every single one of us in this million strong single body have a distinct calling, a distinct giftings, and distinct anointing. But we can't serve our own purpose and role if we are being rebellious through jealousy for someone else's calling. As a rabbi, I can tell you right offhand, I love worship. I love to worship. I'm not a worship leader. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I won't do it. It's not who I am. It's not in my gifting. It's not in my skill set. It's not my calling. I love the children in our synagogue. I love our Shabbat school program and our Shabbat school teachers. But I'm not a Shabbat school teacher. I don't teach little kids. I don't do well teaching little kids. I can't do it. I love kids. I've got two of them. Love them can't teach a bunch of little kids. I love our youth group. I love hanging out with our, our teens and our young adults. And as many of you have heard me say, I love doing all the stupid things youth groups love to do. I like to go to trampoline parks and go-kart tracks and whatever else. I like to do all the stupid stuff. I love speaking into our young people, but I'm not a youth leader. It's not where my calling is. It's not where my giftings are, are focused. Now, right now, Danielle and I are kind of holding up the boat and, and leading the youth in the meantime while we wait for uh, the, the next youth leaders to arise. But nonetheless, this is not my area of anointing, my area of calling. I'm a teacher. I'm a leader. I am gifted in these areas, and I work best in these areas when I am following the Ruach HaKodesh. But if I'm trying to be something I am not called to be, and especially doing so outside the leading and the will of the Lord, then I am in rebellion in the same sense as Korah. You ever thought about that? When we're trying to do somebody else's job, or we're trying to do something outside of our lane, then we're guilty of the same sin as Korah, Detan, and Aviram. You and I have been gifted, have been given unique giftings, unique callings, and unique anointings. And if we are in unity in the body of Messiah and in unity in our local congregations, then we must realize that we are called to stay in our own lanes. We are called to support one another, to pray for and intercede on behalf of one another, to encourage each other, to empower each other. We must build each other up and serve together in our own complementary roles. For the purpose of the kingdom of Messiah. And for the purpose of what he has placed this congregation here to do. We can't all be eyes. We can't all be mouths. We can't all be ears. We can't all be hands. And we can't all smell like feet. But what we can be is exactly what God has created us to be. To walk in our own callings and give by side and hand in hand with those in their callings and giftings who worship and, uh, alongside of us and serve alongside of us for the purpose of furthering the kingdom of Messiah. We can recognize that we are good, uh, what we are good at and hopefully what we are not good at. What we are gifted in and what we are not. What is our role and lane to stay in and what is not.
As I prepare to close, I want to go ahead and ask our worship team to make their way back up to the Bema. We bring this idea of unity up here often at Congregation Maim Chaim. The heart of our leadership here is for our mishpacha, our family, to be in unity in everything we do. We recognize the danger and the damage of rebellion, which is ultimately just another form of disunity and division. And the core reality of 1 Corinthians 12 is the heart of our congregation. It is the core of my heart personally as a rabbi here. I recognize that we each have distinct callings and giftings. You can do things in, and work in areas and ways I could never imagine. You can speak into certain life experiences in ways that I can't. You may be gifted to teach. You may be gifted in worship. You may be, have an anointing for evangelism. You may have an anointing for leadership or whatever else. And my heart is to see each of us walking faithfully in our roles and callings at the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, so that we can work together as a community to see the kingdom furthered here in Baldwin County and beyond. Over the years, I have seen the pain, the anguish, and the turmoil that jealousy, rebellion, and disunity can cause. Even here at Maim Chaim, we have felt the pain, the anguish, and the turmoil. I have watched congregations and ministries be destroyed because of dissension. I have seen great and anointed leaders broken because of the rebellion of those in their ministries. We can dig through the Bible and find countless similar situations to Korach, such as Absalom revolting against David. But what, we'll, what we will see as a common thread throughout is that God's heart is always unity. His heart is for us to work together as one body for His goal, not for ours. That we work together united for His goal. And the only way we can successfully do so is if we each come together in our distinct giftings and unity. If we don't go to do what someone else is doing or to move ahead of the lead of God for transition of authority and anointing, we must be in constant intercession for one another, supporting each other as Aaron and her supported the arms of Moses. We must walk in faithful unity in the Ruach, in the Ruach reaching, uh, recognizing we each have a necessary role a necessary anointing, a necessary calling to fulfill within the body and especially within our local community and our local congregation. When we can set aside our own uh, aspirations and our, our uh, and focus on the Ruach HaKodesh's aspirations and the Ruach's anointing and unity, we can be so much stronger, so much more powerful, and so much more effective for the kingdom of God. We must be one. We must be united and we can see this is the cry of Yeshua in John 17 as he's praying and says, I pray not just for these who are with me, speaking of his disciples, but for everyone who will come to me because of their message, speaking of you and I 2,000 years later, that we would be one, just as the Father and the Son are one, so that the world will know who sent him and who sent us. And we have to ask ourselves in all honesty, if we're divided, if we're operating out of rebellion and jealousy, if we're walking contrary to the word of the Lord, if we are not in unity, and Messiah says that it's through our unity that the world will see him, then who is it the world sees when we're divided? We have thousands of denominations in the body of Messiah. Literally thousands of divisions in the body of Messiah. Who is it the world sees in that division? 
Is it the Lord or is it the work of the enemy? That's not to say that the Lord can't, won't, or hasn't worked through any of these denominations because I wholeheartedly believe He has and will continue to do so. But what divides us are often non-salvational issues. Mm-hmm. What destroys the work of the kingdom of God in our lives are often non-salvational issues. And what the Lord wants us to do is to come together united in the salvational issues we do in fact agree upon. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to all close down our congregations and come together as one giant thing. But what it does mean is we got to stop picking each other apart. we got to stop destroying what the Lord is doing in the work of others and instead work together as one body. Remember, the enemy will always raise up against the Lord's anointed. Like Korach, Datan, and Abiram, he is jealous of what God has done and wants to do in yours and my lives. And through Messiah Yeshua, we have already been given the victory over the enemy and his tactics. So let's give the Ruach reign in our hearts and lives and keep our eyes in unity on the prize. Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are gracious, that you are loving, and that you are forgiving, that you are slow to anger. Father, I thank you that you have given each and every one of us distinct and unique divine anointings, and that you've brought us together and sewed us into one tapestry, able to move forward for the purpose of the kingdom of God, united as one, arm in arm, hand in hand standing as a united front against the threat of the enemy. Lord, I pray that you will speak new life into us, that you will bolster your Ruach HaKodesh in our hearts and our lives, that we will come together even more so united, that we will recognize it's not about our own desires and goals or what we feel like we're being robbed of or falling short on, but Father, that we come together united as one in our gifts, talents, strengths, and anointing for your purposes. And for the glory of your kingdom, not our own. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen and Amen.